from September of 1940 until May of 1941, England, and in particular London, was relentlessly bombed by the German Air Force. The goal of this German blitz was to demolish the British military installations and industries and to so demoralize the British citizenry that England would drop out of the war. It was in this nightmarish context that the BBC, in an attempt to raise the morale among its British listeners, approached an Oxford scholar, a scholar of medieval English literature, who had of late gained something of a reputation as a Christian apologist and tasked him with presenting the Christian faith to the British public with a new and fresh relevance. C.S. Lewis viewed this as an opportunity to present the Christian gospel to a culture that had long since abandoned the historic Christian faith for a kind of religious moralism clothed in semi-Christian garb. The result was a series of radio broadcasts which aired from 1941 to 1944 during the darkest days of World War II, which were eventually collected and published under the title of one of Lewis's most famous nonfiction works, Mere Christianity. It, in what is undoubtedly the most famous chapter of that book, Lewis explores the domination of sin over the human race and the acts of God in redemptive history to counteract and overcome that dominion of sin, culminating in the arrival of Jesus Christ upon the pages of history. I'd like to read to you an extended quote from the end of that chapter. Now, I don't usually read quotes of this length, but it's so good that I hope you'll forgive me. Having, having broadly traced redemptive history up to the birth of Christ, Lewis writes this, Then comes the real shock. Among these Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. He claims to forgive sins. He says he has always existed. He says he is coming to judge the world at the end of time. Now let us get this clear. Among pantheists, like the Indians, anyone might say he was a part of God or one with God. There would be nothing very odd about it. But this man, since he was a Jew, could not mean that kind of God. God, in their language, meant the being who is outside the world, who made the world, and is infinitely different from anything else in the world. And when you have grasped that, you will see that what this man said was, quite simply, the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. In the mouth of any speaker who is not God, these words would imply what I can only regard as a silliness and conceit unrivaled by any other character in history. Yet, and this is the strange, significant thing, even his enemies, when they read the Gospels, do not usually get the impression of silliness or conceit, still less do unprejudiced readers. 
Christ says that he is humble and meek, and we believe him. Not noticing that, if he were merely a man, humility and meekness are the very last characteristics we could attribute to some of his sayings. I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the very foolish thing that people often say about him, which is that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. We are faced then with a frightening alternative. This man we are talking about either was and is just what he said or else a lunatic or something worse. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. God has landed on this enemy-occupied world in human form. Now that has become known as Lewis's famous trilemma, liar or lunatic or Lord. By speaking the way he did, Lewis says, Jesus has left open to us only three options. Either he was a liar or he was a lunatic or he was and is both Lord and God. To Lewis and countless others since the time of Christ, of those three plausible alternatives, only one stands the test of reason and accounts for the abundance of the evidence. Now I begin this morning with Lewis's trilemma because the same three categories appear in today's text in Mark's Gospel. There are three groups of people on display in this passage. Three groups of people possessing three very different perspectives on just who Jesus is. Some, namely his family, thought that he was crazy. Verse 21. Others, namely the scribes, thought that he was evil. Verse 22. But a few namely the disciples, thought that he was God. Verses 34 and 35. This morning, we're going to explore each of those three responses to the words and works of Jesus in hopes of confirming to our hearts and to our minds that only one of those three options is true and justified, that Jesus was and is both Lord and God. So we begin with the first response, which is that of Jesus' own family. If you'll read along with me in verse 20 and 21. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Now before we 
explore the charge against Jesus' sanity, I think there are three textual ambiguities that need to be cleared up, okay? Number one, where does this event take place? Number two, who is this group that is accusing Jesus of insanity? And number three, what is it that has provoked this charge? Well, the answer to the first question is that the setting for this is most likely the home of Peter in Capernaum. It's the only home that Mark has mentioned heretofore in his gospel. The answer to the second question is a bit more difficult. Who is charging Jesus with insanity? Well, if you're reading in the King James Version, your Bible will say, when his friends heard of it. If you have the New American Standard, you will have his own people heard of it. And if you have the NIV or the Christian Standard or the English Standard, you will say, when his family heard of it. So who is it? Is it his friends? Is it his family? Or is it his own people? Who is charging Jesus with lunacy? Well, the reason for the differences in the translation is that the Greek text merely has, and I'll just give it to you literally, those from him. When those from him heard of it. Now, for reasons that get too technical for a sermon, I'll just tell you, I think I think the ESV gets it right here. I think the best translation and the best way of understanding this group is that it is Jesus' family, his mother and his brothers, who have come down to Capernaum and have charged him with being out of his mind. In other words, it's the same group that Jesus talks about at the end of this passage in verse 31, the group that has then come and is sending word that they need to speak with him. Here's why they need to speak with him. They think he's insane and they think he's a danger to himself. Last question. What was it that has provoked this charge of insanity from Jesus' own family? Well, again, the Greek text simply says, when they heard it. What is it? Well, again, there are differing opinions. Mine is that the reference is generic. I think it refers both to the content of his ministry and to the consequence that is mentioned there in verse 20. Namely, that Jesus had become so overwhelmed by the numbers of people that were clamoring to see him and to meet him and to be healed by him that he could not even eat. It seems to me that Jesus' family has come to the conclusion that this little rabbi phase of Jesus has gotten out of hand. Now, I want you to view this from their perspective. Put yourself in their shoes. Maybe a year prior to this, Jesus left his carpenter shop and up and heads off, along with countless other Galilean Jews, toward the wilderness to hear a wild-eyed prophet known as the baptizer preach and to be baptized by him in the Jordan River. That wasn't so odd. People from all over Judea were making this pilgrimage out to the Jordan to hear John and to receive his baptism of repentance. But when Jesus came back from the Jordan, he was different. He wasn't the same Jesus who had left. He began preaching on the hillsides. 
He began teaching in the synagogues. He now possessed the power to heal the sick and to cleanse the lepers and to drive out demons by the power and authority of his word. He began to gather disciples to himself. And thousands upon thousands were coming from all over Judea and beyond to see and to hear him. I mean, what was his family to think? Well, evidently, they must have thought, our eldest brother really is a prophet like the people say. I mean, they could not deny that he was special. They could not deny that he was far from ordinary. They could not deny his power to heal and his authority over the forces of evil. But, stories began to reach them up in Nazareth that worried them that their brother had taken this thing too far. They heard that he had taken to calling himself the Son of Man and claimed to have the authority to forgive sins. Chapter 2 and verse 10. They heard about his increasingly frequent run-ins with the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law and that he had even made the startling claim, even blasphemous claim, to be the Lord of the Sabbath. Chapter 2 and verse 28. They even heard whispers that the Pharisees and the Herodians were taking counsel to kill him. Chapter 3 and verse 6. I think it was a combination of all of those things that prompted them to determine this guy is out of his mind. The word there literally means he's out of his senses. He's lost it. And so they came to Capernaum to seize him, literally to take hold of him forcibly and to drag him back home to Nazareth where they could cool him down a little bit. It's not that they were hostile towards him. They loved their brother. They just did not believe in him. In their mind, they needed to save Jesus from himself. And I think that response is representative of a great many people in the modern era. They don't despise Jesus. They're not hostile toward him. They're hostile to you who misunderstand him. But they, they, they have this vague sense of admiration for Jesus. They find him fascinating, inspiring, in many respects worthy of emulation. But in the final analysis, if pressed, they find him delusional. In other words, he thought he was the Messiah, the Son of God, but he was simply wrong. Have you ever heard of Albert Schweitzer? He was the famous French-German theologian turned missionary doctor in Africa in the first half of the 20th century. In 1906, Albert Schweitzer published a book entitled The Quest for the Historical Jesus, in which he concluded, very openly, that Jesus had lived and died under a messianic delusion. I want to read you a passage of his book where he's drawing it to a conclusion. Listen to what he writes. He's a good writer. Most liberals usually are. There is silence all around. The Baptist appears. 
and cries, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Soon after that comes Jesus, and in the knowledge that he is the coming son of man, he lays hold of the wheel of the world and attempts to set it moving on that last revolution which is to bring all ordinary history to a close, but it refuses to turn. And so he throws himself upon it. Then it does turn and crushes him. Instead of bringing them eschatological conditions, instead of bringing about the end of the world, he has destroyed them. The wheel rolls onward and the mangled body of one immeasurably great man who was strong enough to think of himself as the spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purpose is hanging upon it still. That is his victory, and that is his reign. Allow me, if you will, to interpret that image-laden paragraph for you. He's saying Jesus thought he was the Messiah, and there's a certain nobility in that delusion. He aspired for greatness and thought that he was going to benefit the world by his messiahship. But in the end, he was simply mistaken. And that mistake got him and a lot of others killed. And it's from that terrible fate that Jesus' family is attempting to save him. So this is the first response of the world to the life and the claims of Jesus of Nazareth. He's delusional. Well-meaning, perhaps, but delusional nonetheless. But this opinion of Jesus does not hold up under scrutiny. For one thing, as C.S. Lewis reminded us, a delusional man may be deserving of pity, but he is most definitely not deserving of praise. You cannot, like Schweitzer did, in one breath call Jesus an immeasurably great man and in the next say that he was mistaken, died under a delusion, and led many others to their death who followed him in his delusion. That's not great. For another thing, this opinion of Jesus holds water only if one denies that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. For Albert Schweitzer, Jesus did not rise from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the supreme and undeniable vindication of the truthfulness of his claims to deity and messiahship. And this is precisely why, by the way, Jesus' brothers did not remain unbelievers. They saw the risen Christ. The Apostle Paul, when he's listing all of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 7, he says that the risen Jesus appeared to James, his brother. Luke records that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers were among the earliest believers who were gathered there in the upper room in, after Jesus' ascension when they were awaiting for the promised Holy Spirit. James became the leader of the Jerusalem church, an author of scripture and a martyr for the Christian faith. Jude became a leader of the church and wrote a powerful letter that is forever inscribed in the canon of scripture. 
So what was it that changed their minds from thinking we love our brother, but he's fallen off his rocker and we've got to go save him from himself to thinking he is both Lord and God and I will give my life for him. They saw him in his resurrection glory. They saw the risen Christ. And I want you to see him too. That's why we prayed and sang, show us Christ. For when you've seen the risen Christ, the charge of delusion becomes absurd because no one has ever in the history of the world claimed to be the Son of God and then proven it by rising again from the dead. We now move to the second response which the world has to the life and claims of Jesus of Nazareth, namely that he is evil, that he is possessed by a demon and is a pawn of Satan. And the scribes, verse 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. This charge is far worse and far more dangerous than the first. It's also, ironically, far more honest. You can't say the kind of things Jesus said and be great, but you can be evil. One who is delusional is simply to be pitied. One who is evil must be killed. Mark mentions that the scribes in question were those who came from Jerusalem. This gives the appearance that this was an official delegation from the Sanhedrin who had been sent to investigate this prophet because unsettling stories of his, his claims and his actions had made their way down to the holy city. And the Jews, the scribes, who come up from the Sanhedrin, they come up from Jerusalem, they level two charges against Jesus. Number one, he is possessed by Beelzebul. Okay? That's Satan the prince of demons. Second, that it is by the power of Satan that he casts out demons and presumably does all of his other miracles. In other words, he is possessed by Satan and he is empowered by Satan. Those are the two charges. In effect, they are labeling Jesus as a magician and a sorcerer and the penalty for that under the old covenant law was death. Well, in response to these charges, very serious charges, Jesus confronts the scribes with the illogical and irrational nature of their accusations. Verse 23. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. What is he saying? I want you to keep your eyes on that passage and let's follow the logic Let's follow Jesus' argument. He says, first, if, if what the scribes charge is true, namely that he is possessed and empowered by Satan, then Satan evidently is now working against himself. He's undermining his own kingdom. He's dividing his own household. 
And it is self-evident that a kingdom that is divided against itself will not stand, nor will a household that is divided against itself remain a household. Therefore, Jesus says, if what they claim is true, that Jesus is possessed and empowered by Satan, then Jesus is operating by Satan's authority, and it should mean, therefore, that Satan's kingdom and his household are crumbling by his own action. Yet Satan is too cunning, he is too powerful, and he is too evil to work for his own demise. So the charge of the scribes is built upon a logical fallacy. It goes like this. You say that I'm possessed and empowered by Satan, yet everything I do is an assault upon Satan's kingdom. Therefore, if I am empowered and possessed by Satan, Satan is evidently working against his own kingdom, and it will not long last. But it should be self-evident that Satan is too evil, too cunning, and too wise to work against his own kingdom, and furthermore, that he still wields great power and his kingdom is not crumbled yet. Therefore, what you say is absurd on the face of it. Satan's kingdom is crumbling, and his reign is coming to an end, but it is not because of some ridiculous notion that he has empowered Jesus of Nazareth to do his dirty work, to cast out his own demons. Rather, Satan's kingdom is crumbling, according to Jesus, keep following, Because Jesus is the strong Son of God who has broken into Satan's house, the world, and has bound Satan, the strong man, by his sovereign power and is plundering the strong man's house of his goods, namely sinners who are held in bondage to Satan. That's what's happening during this age. Not that Satan is working against himself, but that one stronger than the strong man has come, and that he has bound Satan by his appearing, and that while Satan is bound, he's plundering his kingdom, he's plundering his household. He is, through the preaching of the gospel, stealing Satan's captives. That's what happened to you if you are in Christ. You have been plundered from Satan's kingdom by the authority of the stronger Son of Man. Jesus then issues a chilling warning to the scribes. Verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Well, there is the infamous blasphemy of the Holy Spirit passage, which speaks of an eternal and unpardonable and unforgivable sin. And I think those verses probably have caused more anxiety and angst in the hearts of tender consciences in the church than any other to be found in the Scripture. It's very likely, I would put good money on it if I were a betting man, that there is a number of you, a significant number of you, 
who have spent sleepless nights worrying over whether or not you have committed this sin. Am I right? Some of you find yourself in the middle of that kind of despair today. I've dealt with many people who have come to me in an absolute panic, fearing that they had blasphemed the Holy Spirit and that there is therefore no hope for them. That they were beyond the reach of grace. I've been there myself. It is a terrible, horrifying experience. There is no suffering like hopelessness. Which, by the way, is why hell is so awful. It's a hopeless place. And if you feel if, as if you are irretrievably consigned and condemned to hell even while you live, that's just a foretaste of what hell really is like. That's why they weep and gnash their teeth. So what I want to do briefly this morning, I want to shed some light on what Jesus means. Because if you're here this morning and you are anxious over whether or not, you, when I read these verses, you feel like a dagger has stabbed into your soul, I have good news for you. And I want you to follow me. I want to give you five truths about this sin for which there is no forgiveness. Truth number one, it is a real thing. And it is a real danger, particularly for church people. We cannot simply sweep away Jesus' warning, as some like to do, by saying that it doesn't apply to us because we're not Jewish scribes and we don't explicitly say that Jesus has a demon. That doesn't work. I do believe that Jesus' warning in Mark 3, 28-30 applies to us because I believe it is essentially the same warning that the author of Hebrews gives five times in his book to the church. In places like Hebrews 6, 4-6, and Hebrews 10, 26-31, and Hebrews 12, 12-17, and other passages like it where the author warns us against falling away from the faith after being enlightened. He warns us against sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. He warns us against selling our birthright for the single meal of sin. There is a real danger that Jesus warns against, and it needs to be heeded. So hear me very carefully. Before I give you any hope, I need to give you some warning. There is a point of no return. Fear crossing it. Secondly, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit consists in being so hard of heart that you can no longer discern good from evil. You can no longer tell the difference between the holy and the unholy. These scribes were looking at the Holy One of God, the One upon whom the Holy Spirit descended and remained at His baptism. And they saw an agent of Satan. They saw an unholy man possessed by the, holy, un, by the unholy spirit. They looked at Jesus and they saw a man essentially no different than the Gerizim demoniac. 
That's wicked. James Edwards writes this, This is an eternal sin because anyone who, willingly or not, cannot distinguish evil from good and good from evil or darkness from light and light from darkness is beyond the pale of repentance. Jesus is going to give you no more light than what He has given you in Christ. So if you reject the light that is, what other light is there? Edwards goes on and he quotes Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness. A curse be upon them. Which is what Jesus is saying here in Mark 3. When you have reached the point that you can look at the Son of God and see an agent of Satan, or when you can look at the light of the world and see darkness and evil, you're beyond hope. Truth number three, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not a single climactic act, but it is a settled state of heart. I believe that's the point of the Greek verb tenses which are used in verses 29 to 30, and the ESV does a pretty good job of trying to bring that out. In verse 29, look down there with me. When Jesus says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit... That verb blasphemes is in the present tense, which denotes continuous action, as opposed to the aorist tense, which denotes a point-in-time action, a one-time event. In verse 30, Mark adds, for they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Were saying is in the Greek imperfect tense, which denotes ongoing, continuous, repetitive action, as opposed to the aorist tense, which would be once in a time action. In other words, it's this is not it's not that they arrive at Jesus' presence, they make the determination that he's possessed by Satan, and that's it, they're done. This is the climax of of a state of heart that has been settled for long before. When Jesus, what Jesus condemns as an eternal sin is not a one-time false accusation. Sometimes you'll see floating around YouTube and whatnot um, atheist groups who will tout that they are committing the unpardonable sin, and, and what they mean by that is that they're filming on YouTube a brief um, video saying that they are renouncing Christ, and they'll say that's the unpardonable sin. It's not a one-time act. Now, they may be as the settled act of their heart, but we're not dealing with a one-time, we're dealing with a settled state of your heart that is one shrouded in darkness and impervious to the light. Truth number four. So many people in their despair over whether or not they've committed the unpardonable sin rush right past the incredible promise of verse 28. Truly I say to you, just listen with new ears to what Jesus says. All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. You know, Jesus doesn't have to say that. He doesn't have to preface his warning like that. He could have gone straight to the threat, but he didn't. Why? Because God's disposition and pleasure is mercy and not judgment. 
God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would repent and turn from their evil ways and live, says Ezekiel 33.11. So if you are in despair and fear and panic over your sin, you've forgotten verse 28, and you've forgotten God's disposition of mercy. Truth number five. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit consists in a settled hardness of heart that is no longer capable of discerning evil from good or light from darkness. Yet, repentance and grief over sin, the desire to be reconciled to God in His mercy, is a sure evidence that you can still see good and that you can still see the light. And the fact that you want the good and you desire the light is a sure evidence of the Spirit's work. In other words, if you fear from the depths of your heart that you have committed the unpardonable sin, you haven't. That's why I can say without hesitation and with full confidence that if you tremble before that verse, if you fear that you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit and are therefore beyond the pale of grace, but you, in this moment, would give anything to feel the smile of God's grace upon you and to feel His fatherly love extended towards you and to hear Him confess you as His child and embrace you in His arms, if you would give anything to have that, that itself is the work of the Holy Spirit. And you are not beyond repentance. You are on the road of repentance. Edwards again writes, anyone who is worried about having committed the sin against the Holy Spirit has not yet committed it. For anxiety of having done so is evidence of the potential for repentance. There is no record in Scripture of anyone asking forgiveness of God and being denied. Yet, the danger against which Jesus warned is real. Which was my first point. It does not happen all at once. It begins with what the author of Hebrews calls a drifting away. Chapter 2 and verse 1 of Hebrews. A being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Chapter 3 and verse 13. It does not always look as explicit as saying Jesus has a demon. It can look as innocuous as coming to the settled conviction that Jesus is less to be desired than sin, and that sin is therefore more compellingly beautiful and satisfying than Christ. So, do not lay awake at night fearing that you have committed the unpardonable sin. Do fear the slow drift out of the harbor of Christ and out into the current of the world, lest you be swept away and not even miss Him. So, Jesus' family saw Jesus as delusional. The scribes saw Him as demonic. There was a third group which had a radically different response to Christ. His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? 
And looking around at those who sat about him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, I think it's best to understand verse 31 is connected to verse 21. In other words, in verse 21, Jesus' family determined to seize him because they thought he was out of his mind. And in verse 31, they've actually arrived in Capernaum to take him home with them. When they arrive, they find Jesus, presumably still in the home of Peter, again surrounded by such a crowd of disciples that they can't get to him, and so they send a message through the crowd to Jesus, and it finally reaches him. But when word finally comes to Jesus that his mother and his brothers are outside seeking him, he responds in a most unexpected way. Rather than saying, oh, oh, hold on a second, my mother is here, and my, my brothers and sisters are here. He, he responds in a way that actually is very offensive in the first century Hebrew culture. Essentially, Jesus claims a deeper kinship with his believing disciples than with his unbelieving family. And many of you would concur with that statement based on your own experience. You are much closer to your brothers and sisters in Christ than you are to your blood relatives who are not in Christ. You've heard it said that blood is thicker than water, but every disciple knows that the Spirit is thicker than blood. The bond of the Spirit that exists within the church between believers for whom Jesus is Lord is stronger by far than the bond that exists between blood relatives who have a different Lord altogether. What fellowship has darkness with light? Now, the words that Jesus spoke do not sit any better in today's culture than they did in the first century. I've talked with some of you who have had unbelieving family members say something to you like, it's great that you're all into Jesus now and I'm glad that you're going to church, but remember, family comes first. <laughs> family does not come first for those who love Jesus. Christ comes first. So there is a third response to Jesus highlighted in this passage, and it's the response of his true mother and brothers and sisters. The response of his disciples. Look again at verse 35. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. What is that will of God? Well, first and foremost, it is to believe in the Son. John 6.28, then they said to him, what, we, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So some look at Jesus and they see a man suffering from delusions of grandeur. Others look at Jesus and see a man possessed of a demon, either literally or figuratively. For instance, Christopher Hitchens the famed atheist and author of the book, God is Not Great, published in a review in the New York Times in 2010. And in it, he cited C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, and then he wrote this, quote, As an admirer of Thomas Jefferson and Ernest Renan, both of whom denied the deity of Christ while affirming the morality of Jesus' teachings, by the way, 
He says, as an admirer of Jefferson and Renan and a strong non-admirer of Lewis, I am bound to say that Lewis is more honest here. Absent a direct line to the Almighty and a conviction that the last days are upon us, how is it moral to teach people to abandon their families, give up on thrift and husbandry, and take to the stony roads? How is it moral to claim a monopoly on the access to heaven or to threaten waverers with everlasting fire, let alone to condemn fig trees and persuade devils to infest the bodies of pigs? Such a person, if not divine, would be a sorcerer and a fanatic. And by the way, that's the conclusion to which Hitchens came. Hitchens did not believe Jesus was possessed by Satan. He did not believe that Satan even existed. He nevertheless believed that Jesus was evil, that he was an immoral fanatic. And there are an increasing number today who are joining Hitchens in in jettisoning the illogical position that Jesus can somehow be good without also being God. But some, and I hope this is you, when they look at Jesus, they see the divine Son of God sent into the world to save sinners by His atoning death and resurrection. And being so captivated by the glory and the beauty and the holiness of Christ, they want nothing more than to follow Him and to know Him and to love Him. These are the brothers and sisters of Christ. And this is the true family of God. So I ask you the question, what do you see when you look at Jesus? There are only three responses open to you. You will either see a man suffering under a delusion, a man who is out of his mind, as Jesus' own family claimed, before his resurrection, that is, Or you will see a man possessed of a demon, or in the words of Hitchens, an evil megalomaniac bent on getting people to worship him as a god. Or you will see the divine Son of Man, anointed of the Holy Spirit, with authority over demons and over death, who has mercy and compassion for sinners, and who is worthy of faith and love and worship. There is, however, one response that is not open to you, yet seems to be the chosen and preferred response of most of America. If C.S. Lewis were writing today, I don't think he would argue against the Albert Schweitzers of the world and the rest of the Protestant liberals who tried to follow a Jesus who wasn't God. I think Lewis today would argue against the apathy of a quasi-Christian culture that believes Jesus is divine and then tries to act as if he were irrelevant. You cannot have it both ways. If Jesus is not God, then he is not good. But Jesus is good because he is God. And if Jesus is God, you have no recourse. And if you know him to be God, you desire no recourse than to owe him your faith, your trust, your worship, and your complete and unconditional and joyful surrender. And that's what I call you to this morning. He's either delusional Or he's demonic. Or he's divine. 
but you cannot regard him as irrelevant. So if that is you, and you haven't fallen yet at the feet of Jesus, now's your time. Now. Today is the day of salvation. Today you must call upon his name while he is near. Cry out to him in repentance. Confess him as Lord. Receive from him the forgiveness of sins and rest your hope on the promise of everlasting life. 